Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns, the podcast where three film fans review a movie and then pitch their own ideas for the sequel. A word of caution coming up that uh, this was recorded during a particularly bad bout of weather here in the UK, so if you hear any rattling on Sol's audio feed, that's because it was hailing quite badly as we recorded this. But nonetheless, hope you enjoy! Hello, yes, today we're going to be talking about Sunshine, the 2007... Sunshine! Sunshine, the 2007 Danny Boyle-directed film. On my shoulders written, makes me happy. <laughs> written... I'm walking on sunshine, <laughs> whoa! Sunshine, lollipops and <laughs> rainbows, da-da-da, that's what I... Bloody blah Um... So, written by Alan... You are my sunshine. <laughs> my, my only sunshine. sunshine. You make me... Okay, no, not going for that. <laughs> anyway, um... Hey, I'm happy! I'm feeling glad I got sunshine in a bag. <laughs> it, well, there we go. Happy that we all got that out of the way. Uh, so, yes, Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle, written by Alex Garland. Now, um, the decision to look at this film was my choice, because it was supposed to tie in with Alex Garland's um, second... Here comes the sun, do-do-do-do. It's not sunshine, it's just sun. Sorry. Was to tie in with Alex Garland's second directorial effort, Annihilation, starring oh. Matthew Hortman. Um, I didn't realise he directed that. Yeah, well, he also directed um, Ex Machina, which would probably make more sense to mm, look at, right. given that that was his first directorial effort. But uh, I um, I wanted to revisit Sunshine, and it was the mm. second sort of uh, major film that he wrote, apart from uh, the first being 28 Days Later, but I'm sure we'll get to that in a larger retrospective someday. Anyway, the reason why we're looking at Sunshine now is because there were certain um, release dates that were changed with the schedule that we had planned, so this got brought forward a few weeks. So now it's not really tying in with anything, but it's uh, still a film. We're just so excited for Alex Garland's <laughs> directorial <laughs> sophomore project that um, well, look, we're it, getting getting in on the the ground like several weeks early. Right. So sunshine. Um, Listen here, sunshine. <laughs> yeah, the title isn't great, is it, for the kind of film that this is, which is sort of like a alien slash 2001 slash event horizon style bunch of people are on a spaceship they're off to reignite the sun because it's dying and the earth is gonna die if it doesn't get warmer quicker uh, quickly then it becomes a sort of slasher film towards the end um so how did we all come to this had we all seen it before was it only for this recording that we watched it well, I'm um, I'm a big Danny Boyle fan. In fact, rewatching this, I watched this film at the cinema. I think probably uh, certainly watched it around the time. Um, definitely not one of his best, um, but watching it again, I I like the direction of it more than the story. I think, and it has kind of basically when I was watching this, I was thinking, I think Danny Boyle might be my favorite director. Which is well, uh, you I know. 
I have to say, I, I find it bizarre that we're doing Sunshine, honestly. It's it's the last thing I was expecting Calvin to pick. <laughs> and uh, like we, we've spoken behind the scenes about doing a, a Danny Boyle season at some point with, you know, he's got loads of films to choose from. And I don't know, Sunshine's one of the last ones I think I would have plucked out to examine after the likes of 28 Days Later and train spotting mm. and those sorts of things. And that, you know, that's not to that's not to say we shouldn't be doing it. It just strikes me like a very weird choice. Well, I find um, it a weird um uh film in his filmography to be perfectly honest. Mm. It's just this strange well, little sci-fi um, well, it's obviously an alien homage. I mean, yeah. the mm. whole thing is just feels like you're watching Alien. Uh, mm. So that Alien slash two thousand and one, a space odyssey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's presumably the appeal why he went to see it, uh, why he with it. But I think the appeal was specifically he wanted to make a science fiction space movie, and I can understand that because he is one of the real. He's one of very few powerhouse directors out there who really do step in and out of different genres without any hmm. real trouble. Most big directors out there will find a niche and stick to it, and it might mean that they end up doing loads of action movie blockbusters and a few horror movies on the side. Or, um, but but Danny Boyle seems very much like a a successor to Stanley Kubrick in that he really does kind of just go right sci-fi, okay, comedy, okay, mm. drama, right, horror, and and they're all, generally speaking, like, really strong contenders within those genres. And, mm. and so I do think Sunshine is a... I think that probably was a conscious decision on his part. Oh, I've not made a sci-fi film, I better... Um, yeah, he definitely... He does, he does seem to take on work that he finds intriguing in some way, which is great. Mm. He doesn't, He's working he doesn't, on a musical now, actually, with... Uh, Miss yeah. Saigon. It doesn't so. feel like he just takes something on because oh, it's a decent bit of work or whatever. It seems to like he genuinely kind of pursues yeah. what he wants to do, and and he did Sunshine. Uh, the pre- his previous film was Millions, which was kind of a pretty small scale family com- comedy, comedy, really. Yeah, it? quite yeah. a quite a nice little lightweight comedy, which wasn't particularly big success, um, and it was is kind of his first. People weren't suddenly weren't sure. But then he followed Sunshine up with uh, Slumdog Millionaire, which yeah. um, sort of isn't his best film by any means, but certainly is probably his most award successful film. Yeah. As far as Sunshine goes, I saw it. For, I remember seeing it for the first time on a plane, which I think is oh. an odd film for them to view on a plane, uh, just because mm. they are in a spaceship and. They have to deal with issues of pressure and uh, yeah. being outside of a craft in freezing temperatures. Uh, but the, I really liked it and uh, bought the DVD and yeah. Hmm. I, I must say I, I was very... I honestly couldn't predict how either of you would react to this film. It's it's very much a film where I could believe it if you just said that you absolutely loved it and it's your favourite Danny Boyle film. But similarly, <laughs> I could completely believe it if you hated it and said you wanted to talk about it because it's such a stupid film that falls apart and blah, blah, blah. I've always been... I've always felt like a bit of a defender of it, honestly. I think people can be quite negative towards it. And I, it's not, like, an amazing film, I wouldn't say, but it's... I'd say it's decent. It's certainly yeah. got a lot about it that I really like. 
I, I remembered it more fondly than uh, my most recent viewing just last night mm. for it. Um, I, you know, it pretty falls somewhere in the middle. Like, I think it's a, a decent sci-fi flick. It's not too long. It doesn't outstay its welcome. Great cast. Mm. But, yeah. Uh, well, that, all the cast, like, when, when I first saw this, it was roughly when it came out, and I don't know if it was in the cinema or, or mm. like, a little bit later, but I didn't really know who any of the actors were. Um, I, I think it was about when I was sort of just getting into film, I suppose. And mm. I, just, I don't know, but th- but watching it this time, this is the first time I've seen it since mm. uh, the other night. It it just every single actor was someone. Yeah, yeah. Even if it was sort of like, oh god, where have I seen him? And then you you know look it up and mm. like that, that guy's in Fear the Walking Dead, that that main one at the start. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, like, but one of my first notes, in fact, looking at them here, is, is that fucking Benedict Wong? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, then it is Benedict Wong before he got all beefy. Because he just used to pop up in... What is it with Benedict Wong, actually, and just popping up in outer space movies? He does that a lot. Yeah. I really like Benedict Wong. He's one of those people, I love it when he pops up in something. I don't think I've ever seen a performance from Benedict Wong where I've thought... Wow, what an amazing actor! He really holds the yeah, scene. But he's just got but a charm, like hasn't he? Yeah. yeah, and I, and Cliff Curtis has never, never let me down. He, he always he's never like similar. Really, I've never seen him do anything that really blown me away. But I'm always happy to see him. Um, Killian Murphy's is genuinely a really good actor. Oh, Cliff mm. Curtis is the one I didn't know who he was, and he's in Fear the Walking Dead. I had to look it up. Is he the um, psychiatrist on board? The yeah, show? yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's one of those people you know him from things, don't you? In this, uh... But it was a little bit kind of they weren't quite who they are now. Because <laughs> even well, when, that's, Ma- that's, when Mark yeah. Strong turns up as the captain of yeah, the first Icarus, exactly. you see him on a little video feed, and, I'm, and I thought, oh, he got Mark Strong to play that. I kind of know, kind of gives away that it's going to be important be later. Yeah, yeah, he's going to come back later somehow. Because you wouldn't mm. just max Mark Strong to do a couple of video things. But then, in 2007, you probably would. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he was... I think here it largely is just these people have gone on to be more well-known, though. I think Killian Murphy was perhaps the only big star. Maybe maybe Chris Evans, he was the Human Torch at the time. But, you know, even that, he's, he's a much bigger... I probably wouldn't have recognised him now were it not for, obviously, Captain America and stuff. It's So, yeah, I, I think a lot of it is just people who've gone on to be more noteworthy than they were at the time. I don't know, I think Michelle Yao, the um, yeah, biologist, yeah. she was a Bond girl like 10 years previously and Crouching Tiger Hidden Oh, Dragon is that what and, she's known for? Yeah, right. and Crouching Tiger and um, there are plenty of, like, yeah, Chinese action films. I know her, but I don't really know why other people know her, because I've just seen her in lots of little things like this. So. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. And it is a pretty classic kind of throw in a couple of people who aren't English or American mm. piece of casting for <laughs> the space space uh, in the future missions, because the whole world has had to come together to yeah. make this happen. Pretty classic. Um, that works quite nicely. Okay, shall we... Get into the plot a little bit. Yeah, yeah, let's. The whole film is more or less set on this one ship. 
and a few scenes on another ship. But it, it does start with Killian Murphy voiceover explaining why this spaceship, which is called Icarus, which seems like a really stupid name to call a <laughs> ship that's job is to fly into the sun when you know that legend. It's, uh... yeah, it's, it's like Prometheus as well, to be fair. isn't Prometheus doesn't have the... Uh... Hmm happiest ending, does it, from what I remember? But yeah, the, the whole point is that these people are on this ship to go and reignite the sun um, using... Is it ever explained what these things are? I wasn't sure if it just... Uh... Isn't it a big nuclear device? Uh... Basically like a massively powerful nuclear bomb but obviously a sci-fi souped up. Yes. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's like, imagine a nuclear bomb built using every bit of uranium and whatever shit they use on mm. the planet. <laughs> I think that's the idea. Hmm. Anyway, or at least everything left after they sent one up and it didn't get there. Yes, yes, because this is the second mission that is trying to reignite the sun. The first one uh, disappeared. And we, we, set, we set up the stakes quite immediately. They're, they're literally saving the world. Mm. Um, yeah. So... That's great. We've set up the And stakes. it's very much a last ditch effort yeah. to save the world. It's yeah. if this doesn't succeed, it's not like someone else can come along and try again. It's like if this doesn't work, everyone is dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so that's sorted that out and then they uh, have the opportunity to uh, rendezvous with this other ship and they don't think there's going to be any survivors but my first note basically is that the captain isn't very good at taking responsibility, which is what I feel like the captain should do. Because obviously, when they're deciding whether they should change course or whatever, he wants to take everyone's advice on board and then he makes the decision. That should be what happens there. But instead, he puts all the responsibility onto someone else. Now, fair enough, he might be the best qualified person to make that decision, but. Don't do that in front of everyone, so everybody knows <laughs> who to blame. <laughs> like, be take some captainly responsibility here, and you you're the one who who takes the blame, basically. I I made a note that I thought you'd like that scene because he just shoots down democracy outright. Yeah, oh, I I very, like that. It, it reminded me of you, Alan. When, when... <laughs> but that's that is but that is, is that is good. That is correct because it, it, this is not a democratic decision. This is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, someone has to make an informed decision here. Democracy is not an informed decision. That's the problem with it. Until they get to that second ship, the first sort of like 45 minutes or so is them sort of milling along their way mm. and just people make mistakes. And that is exactly when I said, I said uh, in my notes, I said, this just feels like I'm watching Alien. It's like that, <laughs> there's that slow build up in Alien where you have about 40 minutes, you're just sort of setting up the crew, you get the sense of this ship. And then things are starting to go wrong, like a little bit at a time, before it all kicks off. So yeah, it is. It it felt. It really felt like a love letter to Alien, and I'm I'm all right with that because it wasn't. It was separate enough uh, to be its own thing as well. But the but just on that note, the the sets. I I thought the setting was really great. Like even the the external stuff, which I presume was mostly CGI, uh, that all worked really nicely. It looked real. It looked believable in terms of what a spaceship might look like in that sense. And the in- interiors just looked like a quite a cool sort of futuristic spaceship, functional rather than like Star Trekky kind of future. But um, spot on, really. It just seemed yeah. It just it's seemed... more of a believable near future than far future. 
and this that made a big difference for me, I think, because it it just grounds the whole thing in reality. And, and when you start to lose the reality later on, I think that helps. My general feeling with this film is that it's got all the ingredients that I would really like. And it's kind mm. of why I like Alien, that sort of thing. Small group of people trapped together. They sort of get picked off one by one. Things are happening like that. Um, they are, It's really tense, like, psychological drama. Mm. And the fact that I didn't quite get on with the film, I think is down to how the story develops. And because the ingredient's there and it just doesn't quite work for me somehow. And I think part of that, we'll get on to later, but also another part of it is these people were all a bit too emotional for my, for my taste, especially given the situation they're in. The fact that they've been chosen specifically for this task. They've been chosen because of their temperament as well as anything else. And that's that's very common in astronaut selection now. Like if you if you're gonna go and be on a space station with like two, three other people for eight months or something, you have to be the you have to be very well grounded is a weird word to use, but very um cool tem- cool temperamentally and not conflict uh, not conflicting with anyone and you, you know, those sort of people are the people who get selected to be astronauts for those reasons, because those are the really problematic things in terms of the personal interactions. So this it just felt like we had to have them emotional for drama's sake, rather than it being justified through the characters who we don't really get to know well enough to to see it, I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's personified quite well with Michelle Yeoh's character. She's a botanist and she's uh, in charge of the ship's oxygen supply, so she's growing plants and whatever, but pretty much every line of dialogue she has is plant-related. It's to do with oxygen, <laughs> it's to do with her babies, it's to do with these... And she gets so emotional. I mean, she she's like crying as if her children are being burnt when things start to go wrong. Um, and it was just, it felt like a too much of an overreaction. The similar thing with Benedict Wong when he uh, reveals to everyone else that he's made a mistake um, and has yeah. caused damage to the ship. And he has this oh, outburst, I, uh, which is just a bit too much for me. I didn't mind his. I, I thought his was all right, because it, it was a sense of he's... You get the idea that he believes that he is like, fucked this one chance for humanity to be saved. You, you really do get the sense that he feels as though he's doomed humanity right there and there, hmm. uh, there and then. And I, I, I like that. At the same time, I get where you're coming from. It does play almost like he's an intern who's been let on the <laughs> ship rather well, than a full-blown I think the, pro- the problem is that we don't really get much, well, we don't get any backstory for these guys at all. Mm. And so that kind of rambling 40 minutes at the start is what we get just to sort of establish their characters. And there's, what, eight of them, I think? Something like that? So yeah, yeah. Y- you don't really get a lot of character with it. And I, I like that because mm. it's like it's the same as Alien. It's like you yeah. just get to see this little glimpse of these people working together. Mm. But I think it just needed, like... Well, it kind of had it. You know, the, the lunch scene where they're all sat around the table just chatting shit. They mm. do pretty much re- recreate that in, with the same table, pretty much, yeah. in this film. But it, it didn't... Like, it, when you see that in Alien, it really just establishes who the characters are immediately. Look, here's the working class guys. Here's the mm. here's the guy in charge. Boom, 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 boom. It's just 
beautiful writing. Whereas yeah. this, I, I, you just don't quite get enough of the characters. They're a bit more interested in setting up the story, I think. And um, it's just, it's like I say, I, I quite like the film, to be honest. I don't dislike it, but I'm, I'm kind of finding these little flaws that stop it from being something that I could have really liked. On a similar note, it annoyed me how... Um philosophical some of the characters were i guess cliff curtis is probably the most so to say that he's supposed to be the psychologist but um there are some characters are fascinated by the sun and he's the one that likes to go to the viewing deck and just sit with the um protector thing at its lowest uh capacity just staring at it and his face is getting all gnarly and he wears sunglasses because he's enjoys watching it so much and I, yeah I, I i don't know if you'd get people that philosophical to do this kind of job you'd want people a bit like chris evans who like i I quite like how his character is very logical he's very about the uh the end result it's like whatever step like he's willing to sacrifice himself to get that end result save humanity i Um, agree entirely and i really like chris evans character but that made it all the more annoying on like the two occasions where he does have these emotional outbursts it feels mm. or or rather more specifically he's really trying to blame other people for things. And it felt wrong. It felt out of character for him. And it didn't feel like it was even done in a way of like he has to hold all this stuff in and hold it in and hold it in and suddenly it bursts out. It didn't feel like that. It just felt like that character suddenly behaving out of character in order to get to a, a dramatic point. Um, and so that annoyed me a little bit. Uh, Searle, the character who likes to watch the sun... I kind of like that. It's this sort of slightly kooky thing and he's being entranced by the sun. But then when Pinbacker comes in later and he's kind of done the same thing and we see that going to more of an extreme and there's a suggestion that the sun has a real kind of godly power over people. And there, There's I, an I, implication I, that, you know, if if left to his own devices, like many people could succumb to it and... Hmm. The same, Rather than yeah. just a, a weird one-off thing where someone's yeah, gone exactly. a bit nuts. Yeah, I, I, I agree, and I, I found that kind of... <clears throat> and there is quite a lot yeah. in here of kind of pseudo-religious uh, ideas, mm. and they never go very far with it, and I think that's deliberate, but it, it's kind of like we, we get teased with this idea that they don't take anywhere, and it's not even on a philosophical level. They don't, we don't really see what the point of it is. Yeah. And that's where it kind of loses me. It, it it just doesn't really come together properly. Mm, very much agree. I, like, up until the last third, I'm really on board with this film. And what struck me on the rewatch really was that... I, I, I'm not entirely sure how it was intended, but for me on the rewatch, this was very much a horror film. I was mm. expecting a science fiction movie going in, but for me, this is real horror. As in, this is this is the sort of existential shit I have nightmares about. Um, I I have nightmares of like the earth being knocked out of orbit and into the sun and or like away from the sun and everyone dying of like, you know, the planet slowly running out of like the ability to heat it. just things like that. And, and this film really taps into a sense of that. The sun is dying 
every fuck-up these characters makes carries the weight of the entire planet on their, their shoulders. So it, it's not like, oh, you're going to die. It's, oh, you fucked the entire human race and all the animals. Um, so so everything, all the stakes are so much higher. And I, I just found it really fucking stressful in that kind of <laughs> slasher movie way for the first 40 minutes or so when they were just dealing with, you know, oh, this thing's gone wrong and we've got to adjust this course and blah, blah, blah. But it worked for me and I, I really enjoyed it for that. Like I say, it was very much this kind of existential scale horror film and I, I can't mm. think of many examples of films that achieve that. Well, can we, let's talk about um, the captain Oh, mm. what happens to him? Because He's the first one to yeah, go. Benedict Wong's character makes an error and it causes a problem, which then two people have to go out uh, yeah. on an EVA to fix. And then, while basically, in order to fix that, um, and they can't quite do it in time, and the captain sacrifices himself. He fixes the thing, but can't get back in time, and so he dies. Um. So that's the big turning point. It's definitely the point where Benedict Wong's character is suddenly like, right, his guilt is completely justified now and we're, mm. that's, that sort of spirals him downwards. It throws everyone into chaos because the captain's dead, the one who's leading them, the one with all the responsibility. So it's suddenly... Um, it's that, that's a pretty classic kind of sci-fi thing or uh, mm. anything where you remove the the authority figure. Mm. Isn't it weird just thinking about it that this film kind of it kind of condones Benedict Wong's suicide. Um, <laughs> and obviously under the circumstances like yeah it was very much the right thing to do cuz in order to like save the human species and earth like yeah it makes sense but it it's quite bold for a film to just come out with a sort of pro-suicide stance in any capacity, I think. It's <laughs> not... At least was... at least intentionally, because you, you'll find things like Donnie Darko that kind of do it without meaning to, but... Uh... I don't know if it was pro-suicide, necessarily. This is a point later on in the film where there's only a few characters left, and they've basically got enough oxygen for a small number of them, and they're like, well, one of us needs to go, so it should be Benedict Wong because he fucked up in the first place and they're going to go murder him. But then they find out that he's killed himself instead. Um, yeah, I don't know if it condones suicide exactly. It's, it's, uh... It certainly sort of says... It's sort of like it goes, oh, good on him. He, he did the right thing there because he... Well, he didn't, he didn't know that the oxygen was going to run out. He he oh, did okay. it because he fucked up earlier on and was. Oh, I thought it was meant to be a combination of that. of that. Like he was guilty and he knew that he had to do it to like... I think the You're last, probably right, actually. Maybe I think the last yeah. time we see him before we find out that he's killed himself is just before the because um, they connect their ship with the old ship to go and have a look around, and the airlock breaks. And the last time we see him is just before the airlock breaks, and I assume that's supposed to be some kind of red herring. You know, we're supposed to think that he went and did it, as indeed some of the characters think he did because he's depressed and uh, doped up and whatnot. Um, but no, after then, I, d I don't think we see him again. I think it's just implied that, yeah, he just feels too guilty about it and can't cope. Oh, well, that's mm. a bit of an overreaction then, really, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> he might have been useful to the mission if he'd stayed alive, for all he knows. Yeah. 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 Idiot. Yeah. Benedict Head. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. I think <laughs> the, the, the most horrific moment in the film for me is, uh, Sol, you were just talking about some of your biggest fears, but uh, the bit when um, they only have one space suit and they have to um, mm. shoot some characters from one ship to the other through space. Yeah, um, and, and I, I, I'll, I'll agree with you there. Like that, that's part of it for me. Like obviously, mm. it's it's playing on this grander scope, but there's so much stuff like that in this film that freaks me out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as as you were saying, there's one spacesuit and uh Yeah. So Killian Murphy gets in that because Chris Evans says he's the only one that can operate the uh the payload, the nuclear device that is gonna reignite the sun, so he is priority. Uh he and the other guy, um Troy Garrity, I believe his mm-hmm. name is, yeah. wrap themselves in foil and go shooting off, but Troy Garrity loses hold of them and goes flying off into space um and there are some horrific shots of him like trying to breathe because oh, he's God, just yeah. shocked and his whole face starts to freeze up it's just, oh it's horrific um, they do really dwell on that don't they when yeah <laughs> like we... well, when he shatters into a million pieces <laughs> <laughs> but he's been shot off into space we kind of we get it <laughs> there's no need to show us him freezing from the inside out i think it's because he was the cowardly one he was the mm. one who was sort of like oh no i should have that space suit and he Which, was saying no and that scene didn't work for me at all either because for mm. exactly the same reason we discussed earlier it's there's no way that he would do that. He would absolutely see the logic of what yeah. the other people are saying. And it's like, mm. even if in the moment your mind's going, oh shit, I'm going to die. I, I want to do, I know I can't. You know you can't. That's the thing. I, I think you'd you'd acknowledge that you are all expendable the second you step onto a highly experimental like yes. <laughs> mission carrying a nuclear warhead into the sun. Like I think you'd be like... <laughs> Okay, I acknowledge that there's a very good chance that I'm not coming back from this alive, and that's okay. Mm, yeah. I think yeah. you'd make your peace with it ahead of time. That scene, I mean, realistically, if that scene had been just a little moment of them having kind of a slight conflict about who should go, we've only got one seat, who should go? Oh, well, I should go because of this. And then someone goes, no, look, this guy has to go because he knows he's going to And they kind of like, just this moment where and then he's like, okay, yeah, okay, okay. But yeah. for him to be, it was such a sort of, childish outbursts and uh, okay it's your life but in these circumstances when we've set the stakes so high that's actually really small yeah it um it kind of sounds like we all take significant issue with alex garland's writing (laughs) 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 to say we're uh doing this episode for him (laughs) i didn't really like ex machina by the way i haven't seen that another film i've seen on a plane actually I only ever see Alex Garland's films on planes anyway. Um, You're an international traveller, that's why. <laughs> oh, only when he's got a new release. It's only, only time I travel. Is there an Alex Garland film on this flight? No? Then, God, it's not going to bother. Yeah, that's it. Anyway, this is the part of the film that I think I like the best when it's just it's Rose Byrne, Michelle Yeoh, Killian Murphy and Chris Evans, and they're the four survivors. They're on the ship, and they've got to figure out like how much they can do with all this, you know, the limited oxygen that they've got. And then the uh, the twist comes when the ship's computer tells Killian Murphy that there are actually five people on board the ship and not four that he believed, because Mark Strong's pinbacker was still alive from the previous mission and went mad and presumably killed everyone. It's the sci-fi equivalent of the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It, yes. it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, Pinbacker, by the way, that name, I assume, is a reference to Darkstar. Are you familiar with Darkstar? You must have seen it, right? Oh, I mean, uh, I know of it. I haven't John seen John Carpenter it. film. Uh, yes, written by... Um, the guy who wrote Alien, right? John what's o- his name who wrote Bannon. Alien? Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon, yes. Yeah. And uh, My favourite, apparently, based on that episode where I kept saying... Oh, our Alien episode, where I was defending him and then Calvin got annoyed because I said he was good. <laughs> <laughs> I just well, see some of the films and it's... Yeah, Return anyway. of the Living Dead. Brilliant. <laughs> anyway, Darkstar, so, apparently. So, Darkstar uh, is... I, I like Dark Star is a little sort of quirky comedy, really, that's set on a, 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 a spaceship. And there's a lot of elements in there that you can see transferred to Alien in terms of the yeah, dynamic I've, and things. I've but heard the, it's very much what Alien would probably weird... have been without Ridley Scott coming yes. on board and being like, let's, let's change this and make this better. It is a, a weird little film, but it's worth watching just kind of mm. out of interest, uh, especially because it's John Carpenter's first film as well, and obviously he went on to many other things. But um, one of the main characters in that is called Pinback. Um, ah. And so I presume I, Pinbacker is a, a little nod to that. A, it must a bit be. of a weird name otherwise. Yeah. Especially as Mark Strong's doing some sort of vague Eastern European accent. <laughs> what accent was he doing? Because I thought he was doing South American. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, at first, because we see some of his like vlo- captain's logs uh, on little video screens. Uh, then that disappears and then he becomes sort of Irish, I thought. I don't he's, know. He's in the he's future. Had seven, he's had seven years alone, like, on a spaceship, watching the sun. Like, I've heard this before, but, like, it really did strike me, like, the film kind of fell apart once he gets reintroduced into the mix. Like, it, mm. it's just... Yes. It's just such a cheap plot device that he's been out there the whole time and he's just gone mad and he wants to kill everyone. And it's never really elaborated on other than always oh, obsessed with the sun. I, I, and he thinks he's like, he's gone schizophrenic because he thinks God's talking to him. Cause he's just been sat in this sun bath basically for seven years. or have a lot. I don't know. It just none about nothing about it really works for me. And throughout the film when he's, introduced it just feels like a cheap oh uh, we need something to make it all go tits up plot yeah. device in the third act and, and i it. i said the same sort of thing i said i don't like the switch to an aggressive external force whereas the mm. threat to them previously is external force the sun basically is the threat but, but I, it's passive that's, it's completely passive well and, and that's this, the thing I, I I really like that about the film up until his introduction yeah, and, exactly, and it's yeah. very much this is a weird film for sci-fi because nine times out of ten, science is the villain of the piece. Science creates Frankenstein, creates all of your conflict and your problems. But this is a rare instance of a film where science is the hero of the piece, nature is the, the villain, all the bad stuff is basically nature fighting back and, and us trying to overpower nature with science, because we can. And... It's a rare case of that being celebrated until Mark Strong is introduced and completely muddles that entire dynamic that's been quite consistent up until that point. And especially with all the God stuff as well, that just kind of muddies it further without giving any explanations. Um, yeah, I agree. It sort of feel it cheapens it and it just it's a bit too messy, isn't it? It just doesn't work. 
out of all of us, I think I'm the one most likely to uh, be forgiving to this part of the film, given that I'm a big slasher film fan and all that sort of thing. But even I, they just don't elaborate on it enough. He goes and kills Michelle Yeoh in a very um, unceremonious way. And then he chases Rose Byrne around a bit. And that's about it. There isn't much, like... If they're going to go full-on alien with it and have him lurking in corridors, picking them off one by one, then make something out of that. Don't just have it be the last 15 minutes as an excuse to get some escalation going. Yeah. Uh, I I think that's it. It just feels cheap. It just feels like... Yeah. It feels like... It almost feels as if someone came on board to rewrite the script and a studio note said oh it's too ambiguous this we need a, a villain and they just had mm. to tack mm. something on it it really does just feel like Can an we external talk element quickly about Michelle Yeoh's death oh right yeah yeah so when when Michelle Yeoh dies she she's in a garden which has been completely destroyed and she sees a little green shoot and this is like the moment of life uh, finds a way and she has this kind of moment with it and and she says my god which in a film that has these sort of religious overtones that feels like a deliberate thing to say rather than just a general sense of shock and the fact that it's immediately followed by her being murdered by a religious zealot (laughs) uh, what is that trying to say (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> the God leads you astray, don't listen to him. <laughs> if she hadn't been so fascinated by that little sprout, then, you know, maybe she'd still be alive to That's grow more. Well, no, she wouldn't. She was going into the sun anyway. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in theory, yeah. the spaceship was going to make a return trip. That, you know, it is No, 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 no. This By this point, they know they've got enough oxygen to get to the sun. Oh, you're right. The yeah, they know it's. They, know, the they all know they're going to die at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a matter of getting this thing to to save the rest of the world. I wonder. Uh, I did wonder if her finding that little, um, you know, sprout was to sort of imply like, oh, actually, given time, that they will have enough oxygen. You know, they could possibly grow more. But then I, I guess by this point, they've only got like what a few hours until they go flying into the sun. So she's not exactly going to be able to, yeah, grow an entire forest. So yeah, it just serves as a, weird, as a weird exit for her from the film. That character. So then, if we get right to the very end, where it becomes this mad rush to get to the payload and get it delivered before the external threat kills them, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But that's fine, and obviously they managed to do it just in the nick of time or whatever. But what the interesting thing about this whole bit is that we start to lose a sense of reality. Um, And now this is mentioned earlier on, when Killian Murphy's character is doing a bit of exposition and he's looking at a projection of what's going to happen when they drop this bomb. And the kind of the, the projection that they have, the computer simulation kind of says, too many variables, unknown, unknown, danger, danger. And he basically says, once it gets past this point, it's, and he says something like it's going, the velocity is so much that it starts to disrupt space and time or something like that. He says some sort of mumbo jumbo that I just kind of passed off as, science babble that they were just you know using to make it sound good but then when we get to this point we start losing a sense of time and a sense of gravity uh uh, literal gravity as in we i'm not sure what 
like they seem to fall off a cliff and then they stand up again and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and like there is occasional freeze frames. Um, and yeah, and there's kinda, bits where characters will be interacting out of sync with other characters, for example, as well, yeah. and that sort of thing. It's, yeah. And and then there's also the lighting effects because any time that Pinbacker is there, we're kind of obscured by sun. There's all these flat. Mm. There's these light flashes and stuff. I hated all that on him. Well, I I liked it from a direction point of view. I thought it was interesting, new, bold kind of way to make a film. Uh, but the story wasn't grabbing me enough to justify it all. And so mm. it was just a little bit like, what the fuck is going on here? But it did feel like a good director being experimental in what is otherwise a mainstream film, and I like that. Mm. I, I have read, uh, after I watched it, I was just looking through some interviews and the like, and I have read Danny Boyle saying that Pinbacker breaks the realism of the film on purpose, and I mm. couldn't really find any elaboration on what he meant by that or why he does that but um, yeah I mean it does seem to be very much a conscious decision that Pinbacker is this entity that just sort of fucks with the rest of the film in in more ways than one. My my note here actually is film making a point about something god knows what so I think I'm (laughs) on board with you Alan Yeah yeah, and I think that's ultimately why the film just didn't win me over the ending was a little bit confused and there was a few too many elements that just didn't work for me even though there were so many things that did Um, I'm not sure what we're supposed to take from the final few scenes where Killian Murphy is in the device and he sees the sun coming through and he's sort of stuck in between a nuclear detonation and the sun um, I mean, yeah, that that's. <laughs> I struggled with that. I'll be honest. Like, I I know I know it's not the most scientifically accurate film, but that is a that is a scene that like very consciously just completely breaks the reality of anything. It's like a dream mm. sequence almost. He he well, reaches is, out and is, touches it's... the sun, and uh, yeah. obviously he would have been you know disintegrated like before he could even get, like, miles towards the sun. Like, he, he wouldn't get anywhere close to it to touch it. It just doesn't work that way. And, you, you know, I can buy that this mechanical well, ship and everything, <laughs> but if the sun's right there in front of him, it, it's all Well, it's, very... it's not supposed... Like, it is. I think it is supposed to be a dream sequence, if anything. Or no, I know. Like his, it's, it's his moment weird, of death it? or something. It's Yeah. But this is... It goes back to be- the beginning where the people are obsessed with the sun and, the, and when the captain is dies because of the sun hitting him uh Searle is obsessively kind of like what do you see what do you see mm. and so that's kind of what we're seeing i think we sort of like when the sun takes you for its no i know self. it's it's, it's well, an odd but yeah it is though, isn't it? it just kind of it is and it, it because of what's just come in the sort of 10 minutes before it's not completely out of line but on from the first hour of the film it it, it takes such a massive departure and then we see um, back on Earth, there's a brief coda where we see that the sun is sort of reignited um, and light sweeps across the land, which doesn't really make much sense because light just hits the furthest point immediately and it doesn't exactly sweep along the ground, but never mind. Yeah, I was hoping for an ambiguous ending. I was, to be mm. honest. I, I think it would have been a lot stronger if we didn't know if it 
save them or not, and they kind of looked up, and it was a nice, beautiful morning, but it was as beautiful as that kind of dimly lit... What Like, there's a film called The... Um, the Day the Earth Caught Fire, which I am familiar with because I found it after those existential nightmares I've mentioned with the, the <laughs> Earth being knocked into the orbit of the sun, and that's basically what this film is. Uh, it's one of Michael Caine's first screen appearances, actually. He plays a little policeman mm. who's like, you can park over mm. there, or something at one point. <laughs> but that... Well, I guess that's a massive spoiler, but it, it's a similarly... It's a very similar film, but it takes a far more, like, ambiguous ending where hmm. you don't really know if Earth's doomed or saved or what. And uh... Well, when I was watching the film this time, it's been 10 years since I saw it when it came out, um, when Killian Murphy is like making a mad dash to get to the payload and he's kind of, as far as we know, he's got rid of everyone else and he has to kind of do a running jump out through space in a spacesuit to grab hold of the payload and I thought at that point and it like I said the film had lost a sense of reality so I wasn't quite sure what was going on but I thought at that point that the thing had been launched it was all ready to go and he just wanted to go with it because he yeah. decided rather than die on the ship he wants to die with that bomb his bomb and he's going to mm. go into the sun with it which I also thought was a reference to Dark Star because Dark Star ends with someone basically mm. in a spacesuit surfing into a into oblivion hmm. um which and so i thought that was going to be the ending like he just grabs hold of it and then he rides it into the sun and then like, we don't uh, slim pickings in dr stranger <laughs> yes exactly yeah <laughs> and yeah that would have been a great ending for me and then he gets and then he suddenly cut he's inside he's not even got a suit on anymore and then the well, other two are in there as well and like what, 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 what happened here? well yeah, I, I assumed that he needed to be inside to do something i'm not quite sure what that is because he there's just a bit of a fight with Pinbacker, saves Rose Byrne, um, and then runs into the uh, the main detonation room, I guess, just to make sure it all works. I, well, obviously, really know... the, the plan cannot be that he's supposed to be on there when it goes in. Mm. Um, otherwise, that would have changed the characterizations before, mm. uh, especially when he's the one who has to make a decision of whether Goff, like, when he's the one who knows he's going to die, that would be a different... Anyway, so I think the reason he goes on there is because he thinks Pinbacker might be on there and might try and do something. Yeah. And so he has to stop it. I'm not sure at that point what a person could do to stop it. It's like it's been launched into the sun. Everything's been triggered. I don't know if there's... Like, it's not just a big red button that you push to say stop, is there? (laughs) Well, I wondered, yeah, I wondered if there had to be some kind of reaction that took place as it was going into the sun i don't know like all these blue lights start appearing and electrodes and uh whatnot i i I don't really know what's going on but um the dvd does have an audio commentary by uh professor brian brian cox Cox. yeah he was the scientific (laughs) uh consultant on the film i believe he's like all right there's this massive bomb and it's like going into the sun. It's dead amazing. <laughs> I think he probably is. I mean, my understanding is Danny Boyle and Alex Garland took him the 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 idea of the film and said, we want to make a film where the sun's dying. And he was like, oh, the sun's not going to die for billions of years and that's never <laughs> going to happen. And they were like, yeah, but if it was, because that's the film, how might that happen? And he was like, oh, I don't know about this. And... Went off to his mates at CERN. In space, brilliant. (laughs) 
<laughs> but they they came up with this really elaborate backstory for for the sun uh, decaying because some uh, I think you call them cue ball particles or something like make their wow. way into the sun's core and begin to decay it. And is that in the film? I don't think no. it's in it. It's certainly not in it in any like overt way. Yeah, I, I think it was just there because because there was a bit of. Um, Controversy is not the right word, but I do remember there being a bit of backlash against this film for not being scientifically accurate. And I mean, if any one of the three of us was going to get hung up on that, I'm sure it'd be me. And I mean, it's <laughs> it's, it's just a film, guys. Come on, you've got to, you've got to take the premise of the sun is dying and go with it. That's yeah, what yeah. This film yeah, that's is, your starting so. point, isn't it? You just go with that. Yeah, and I know it, I think it does fall apart a bit near the end, but it's. It's not a film, it's not like Interstellar, where you get this, you know, where Christopher Nolan's voice pops up every ten minutes to go, this is this is real science, everyone, did you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there are like, there are sounds in space, yeah, yeah exactly. and that kind of thing, it's, and I, I just listened to a few bits of the Brian Cox commentary, and indeed a lot of it is just sort of, that wouldn't really happen, that would happen, <laughs> you wouldn't hear that, just... <laughs> that i know um yeah i've heard him justify the sounds in space as well he he said something like i think he said they did it without any sound in space but then the footage looked too cheap so they ended up just putting sound effects over it because it made it feel like more like a real film like a proper blockbuster and Mm. nice music like the theme music yep yeah yeah in fact that that one um the, the most um, used tune in it, this big sweeping emotional why, theme. Why have I I've heard, heard that? a lot. Yeah, I've heard... But I don't know where. Yes, I'm exactly the same as you. I can't tell you where I've heard it, but I... I, I yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's in adverts or yeah. just like reality TV stuff yeah. or what. I, I it has become a kind of stock emotional theme. Yeah. I, I think our, in, our ratings will be quite interesting to see where we all peg it. I, uh... I kind of, I, I kind of just wish it had been a straight up sci-fi thriller slasher film, um, and forego a lot of this um, philosophical stuff about the sun and religion and all that kind of stuff. I'm fine for that to be there thematically, but if it was going to try and be some kind of 2001 esque um, sci-fi drama, then it needed to be longer to explore those ideas. Um, Maybe need to perhaps lose some of the more slasher horror elements, but yeah, um, still enjoyable, enjoyable watch. So ratings? It it would be a six point five if we did point fives, but lacking that, I'm going to go seven. Well, I'm going to go seven as well. Oh my god! <gasps> it's 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 a seven from Senior Sevens, but it's also <laughs> a a a what what tr- hat trick seven. <laughs> Siete! Siete! Arriba! Put on your seven hats. Guys, I'm getting my tequila shots out. We should, we should celebrate this. We the chicken dance isn't even Mexican. Why did I do that? I was trying to do like mariachi music. But... We need to get some uh, sombreros with a big seven on it. That's, we can merchandise this shit. <laughs> So, pictures then. Can I yes. can I do mine? Because it sort of follows yes. on from uh, what we were just talking about with scientific inaccuracy. 
Okay. I um I just thought I'd I thought I'd throw caution to the wind with regards to research and just write something with similar levels of disdain for for <laughs> science. Um so so in my film it's it's sort of a spiritual sequel. It's not directly following on from anything. Uh, my film, we open on uh, a kid playing baseball with his brother in their garden, and the brother hits the ball into the neighbor's garden, so the kid, our uh, hero, Buck, goes to retrieve it, <laughs> and uh, it lands near the, the neighbor's window, and he overhears the, the female neighbor say, Oral sex? Oral <laughs> sex you want, huh? You'll get oral sex when the kid next door walks on the moon! <laughs> and, uh, and then we we cut to present day, which is actually the future, but like Buck's a uh, uh, grown up now, and he's an astronaut preparing for a mission because the moon is dying, <laughs> and, and they're sending a spaceship of the world's best and brightest astronauts to. What does what does that look like? The moon dying. What does that mean? It's going mouldy. <laughs> because the bo- they're sending a bomb, a cow bomb, which is a big automated f- automated farm full of cows that basically feeds them and milks them and produces cheese, and it'll inject into the center of the moon and it'll keep replenishing it with brand new cheese. Uh, oh well, and, How- uh, we're all saved. That's it. Save everyone. Because um, with the moon dying, like tides are going weird, you know, it, it, mm, night, mm. the lighting at night's a bit off. It's it's just not <laughs> right. Uh, but apparently, it takes ages to get to the moon, like probably a year or something. Like no one knows <laughs> how long it takes. They're, they're so, driving there. So, <laughs> so uh, the walking and the moon, the moon will die sooner than that. So. They have to make the spaceship go faster, so NASA paints some some really rad stripes down the side, and that <laughs> means that they'll get there in about a day. Um, and so, then they launch on the mission, and the first obstacle is there's a huge asteroid field, and they crash <laughs> into an asteroid by mistake, and it it knocks out the uh, directional navigation equipment, and knocks them off course as well. So they have no idea which direction they're supposed to be going in. But Buck, the smartest of the astronauts, remembers that he can navigate by looking at the Great Wall of China, which is obviously the only man-made structure visible <laughs> from space. So he looks at that and, and figures out which way north is and uh, gets back on track. <laughs> and uh, then they, they hit a dangerous electronic uh, lightning storm field floating around. And they don't know how to safely get through it. But then Buck, again, the smartest of the astronauts, remembers that lightning never strikes the same place twice. So all they have to do is wait for lightning to hit and then quickly drive the spaceship to that spot. Then wait for it to strike somewhere else and sort of, you know, all the way to the other end of the uh, the dangerous area. Um, and then they, they, they get to the moon and... You might be wondering why why they're feeling such uh, trepidation about this. Well, it's because no one's actually ever set foot on the moon. And in a flashback, we see Stanley Kubrick abusing his actors, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, <laughs> on the set of uh, the moon landing being faked, <laughs> authorised by the head of NASA. 
and it so makes them do makes them do the first steps sixty two times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh. anyway, so Buck goes out on the mission to find a suitable place to put the cow bomb. And as he's deploying down to the surface, he wishes uh, he whispers, "Good luck, Mister Grosky," which confuses everyone. <laughs> then. Uh, then he goes off to, to wander around the corner and everyone waits for him. Uh, they can't contact him on the radio because the, the waves won't get past the, the moon mountain he's gone around. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he doesn't come back when he's meant to. Uh, and he ends up being about four hours late. And an astronaut says, should we, should we send someone to look for him? But another astronaut points out that they're not legally allowed to do anything until he's been missing for a full 24 hours. <laughs> uh, so, so then uh, Buck basically, it turns out, fell into a hole on the moon. And it's full of moon people who are just like us, but dressed in moon people clothes. And they've got... They've got tridents and things like that. And uh, Buck says, whoa, how on earth did beings exactly like humans evolve separately on the moon? And the Moon King says, evolution, it's only a theory. If you evolved from a monkey, then how come monkeys aren't giving birth to humans nowadays, huh? And uh, he explains that only God can save the moon for them. So Buck goes back to his spaceship and tells all the astronauts that they need to send a message to Earth and uh, they do, and everyone on Earth joins hands in prayer to summon God. And eventually God relents, and a big hand appears out <coughs> of a black hole, which, as we, we know, are, are all portals to other dimensions anyway. And uh, it picks up the moon, and it takes it into the black hole, and then it produces a new a new moon, which is a sort of giant baby bell, and it takes <laughs> all the wax off and just puts it where the moon was, a brand spanking new moon for the planet. And everyone is saved because of divine intervention, except for our astronauts who were on the old moon and are now in heaven uh, with God. And God explains that they were all bad Christians who don't deserve to get into heaven because they didn't follow the word of the Lord. Uh, it's Christian God, <laughs> by the way. And, uh, of course, because because you know, true they, God. yeah. And and the astronauts say, well, well, maybe we had sex before marriage and ate meat on Fridays and stuff, but. Ultimately, we try to be good people and do what Jesus said. That That's really what the Bible's all about, isn't it? And and God was like, uh... No. No, because, uh... Actually, no, sorry. God, God's like, yeah. <laughs> that is what... Oh. Yeah, because everything's Twist. wrong in this film. <laughs> oh, oh, ah. Uh, <laughs> I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> God, God's like, yeah, the Ten Commandments suggest that that's not the case at all but uh you're right like you just have to sort of try and be broadly good in your own definition that's all that matters hmm. <laughs> and, and the ten commandments were bullshit and i didn't mean any of what i said even though i'm infallible <laughs> <laughs> the end okay good very nice factually accurate yeah, good. yes I can't wait until we get to our god is not dead episode <laughs> in, uh, a few weeks time it's gonna make for some fun discussion um shall i do mine next it's only short right so mine follows on directly from sunshine so killian murphy's character kappa as we saw at the end of the film is um stuck in this midway point in between the sun and this nuclear detonation 
So, obviously, what that has done, then, is uh, it created a new star, but because Jim was in the middle of it, he became that new star. So, <laughs> he, the ba- basically, the sun, it, it's like hit Killian Murphy's face on a massive sun, a bit like the baby <laughs> in the Teletubbies. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> He wakes up and he's like, "Oh, whoa, wow! This is this is new." Whoa! And, <laughs> what and, was uh, in this, dude? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he decides that it's he all the plants re- that were set on fire in that. In that <laughs> yeah, she was just growing weed. Lab, like, going really high. <laughs> uh, so he decides that he wants to reconnect with his uh, previous girlfriend. Um, especially when he uses his super vision to uh, see that she became pregnant shortly before they separated. His, and he su- went on his mission. super vision. Yes. <laughs> just, just glossing over that one. <laughs> anyway, um, what? So, so she she's had a baby. Well, he's a he's a young lad now. Um, but nonetheless, Jim has you know Kappa. Do, do so you mean like X-ray vision? <laughs> like he's looking down no, 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 at her, no. and there's a little fetus in her stomach. No, 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 not a fetus. It's a baby now. It's born. Oh, okay. It, oh, he's uh, just he looking down for... on Earth, and she's just there with a the kid. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why he needs supervision because it's a very long way away. <laughs> so, um, what follows next is a comedy of errors as Jim tries to do classic dad things with his young son um, because he's got this stepdad and he didn't want him to bring him up. He wants to bring up his son himself. Um, so just just to clarify, he is a, a giant ball of burning elements in, the, in space. Well, yeah, and he's, this causes okay. problems. He's the okay, yeah, son. He yeah. Is, is there a pun ah. title here? Ah, no, you'll get... Son well, and I, I son, was, or... I mean, I was thinking of that as more of a thematic resonance, but um, son and son sounds good. <laughs> sunshine and sun. <laughs> sunshine, two, sunshine, sun. So anyway... So, sunshine, uh, but it's spelled S-O-N, shine. Ah, yes, there we go. So Kappa's doing everything he could, you know, all these classic dad things, but because he's the son, he can't do them. So like when he wants he, when he wants to go fishing with his son, he um every time he gets within range of casting his uh, rod, the lake dries up. So he can't do that. Um so he's really still got like to... he's got items in like a crawl space, like a cartoon character that he just whips out when he needs something. <laughs> Okay. Yes. And um, he re- it, like his son loves ice cream. He really <laughs> wants to um, have some ice cream, but he he, he can't like because the ice cream men hate him. Um, <laughs> and so you know they they, his son they go real, to an aqu- his son really wants to get a good night's sleep, but he can't because his dad's <laughs> just there. <laughs> uh, so things don't go well. Suffice it to say. Um, and Cap has to do a lot of soul searching in this time, and uh, there's a lot of thematic stuff here about how he's a son trying to connect with his son. So, what does that mean, everybody? Who knows? Um, anyway, he decides that being the son is good enough, so he just does that and uh, lets humans look after his, his boy, because he's no longer human. He's above that. In a way, everyone on Earth is his child 
Because he's the son. Oh, yes, that. Yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, he gives birth to, like, everything. Like, plants and um, animals So he becomes the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, no God in this one. (laughs) Calvin, I think that might be the weirdest pitch we've ever had on this show. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, don't I remember my original Fifty Shades one was. A yeah, bit that was pretty. Funny. It was weird, but it was slightly less surreal and just this, bizarre. Yeah, but this one is. <laughs> this one feels like consciously weird and surreal, whereas that one, I think he was just <laughs> hadn't slept very, for two days. Yeah, I was very, very tired. I can't remember why around that point, but I was tired and ill. Uh, anyway. <laughs> So, Alan, <sighs> do, do you have a proper pitch? Or is well, kind of. Um, oh, excellent. Let me get it up. Okay, so, and this needs to set this up a little bit. Um, take Cast your minds back, if you will, to the early 2000s. And um, I wrote a sci-fi idea that was very much kind <gasps> of my own homage to the likes of Alien, one of my favourite films. Oh, um, and I remember when Sunshine came out and I watched it and I was like, oh, this is really similar to my idea. It has a lot of similar things. Um, and uh, I kind of took a little bit of pride in that almost. that I, was, I felt like my idea was kind of similar to something that had been made like by proper filmmakers and stuff. So I'm going to give you that pitch now. So... In the future, there is a lucrative trade in space exploration to be made uh, from discovering new life, new plants, new planets, uh, anything of scientific interest, basically. The government often puts out contracts of exploration to independent companies, uh, and one of these companies that we'll be involved with has fallen on hard times. And in order to make ends meet, it sends its ships out on cargo runs and sometimes on like just glorified taxi rides for important people, that sort of thing. Hmm. One of these ships is called the Amelia. So the Amelia is the ship we'll be dealing with. The Amelia is... There's nothing funny about that. Yeah, what's wrong with the Amelia? It's... uh, Oh, I bet it was named after a girl that you had a crush on. No, it's Amelia Earhart, isn't it? It's named after Amelia Earhart, of course. Oh, oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the Amelia is currently on its way to investigate an uncharted star system of some kind. But, mm. Hang on, did you have uh, a crush on Amelia Earhart, Alan? Is that... <laughs> she is my type, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking mm. about how the Icarus and the Prometheus are like not the best names <laughs> for a ship. <laughs> Do you think maybe naming your ship after someone who went missing, presumably crashed over an island, scientific, like, the best answers... Uh, uh, that she basically got picked apart by crabs after dying in a crash. Do you think maybe she wasn't the best person to name your spaceship after? <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the the crew are on board, but then a company executive is going to join them on this particular trip. But he's oh, there the to suits. kind of... Yeah, exactly. He's there to ride along and just see if there are any areas that could be cut back on or improved upon, economically speaking. Now, I've got all the character breakdowns here. I'll try and do a sort of smaller version of it. So first of all, I've got I've got a three-man sort of pilot team. Um, and it is a three-man team, because obviously I wasn't that woke back in the early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> it was a different time. We didn't know. Uh, so I've got, <laughs> I've got the captain... Comes from a military background, and this is a quote from my actual notes. It says, "His father and grandfather were both pilots who fought against rebels during the setup of the world government." 
Okay. So <laughs> that's that's your backstory. Apparently, when, when's the sun? <laughs> In the future. <laughs> so the captain's very kind of military minded, respects the chain of command, hierarchical authority, that sort of thing. But feels unfilled because he'd rather be on a government military ship. Co-pilot, younger man, late 20s probably, classic officer material. And I've put here, he's put from a slightly posh background, but was rejected by the military due to colour blindness, uh, which is why oh. he now works for a commercial company. And I think about this, I think this must have definitely been written before Little Miss Sunshine as well, um, in which that's a kind of a, a plot point. Your navigator, uh, he's young man, straight out of university, uh, been hired because this company is kind of desperately hiring young people because they're cheaper. Uh, then I've got a doctor. He's there to take care of any medical needs, obviously, but also he's, uh, you know, a kind of all-encompassing biologist slash zoologist in case they find anything of interest. Uh, same goes for uh, my botanist. And this is an um, interesting link to Sunshine because in mine, she's created a vast park within on one of the decks of the ship. There's essentially like a, you know, a lush green uh, environment uh, that oh. they, they often go in. Um, in my in my notes, in the margin next to her character outline, I wrote irreplaceable. Um, not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? As in, as in her role? I guess in, the character. The I guess the the character within the in the on the ship is like she does. She can do things that no one else can, or something like that. She's know. not expendable hmm. like the others. Um, uh, right, my next one. Um, the I'm gonna name. I'm gonna put throw some names in here because I think I named them later on. The botanist is called Cl- Clara. Clara, uh, and then I've got tech engineer, sort of head engineer, called Petra. She's computer expert. She can fix anything, do the electrics, all that sort of thing. And she's also kind of an unofficial boss of the other engineers, um, but. She gets on well with everyone and she kind of bridges the gap between the officer class and the working class engineers. And now here's another another little quote directly from my notes. Of similar ages, uh, Petra gets on very well with Clara and they have formed a fond friendship, perhaps even more. Oh. So there you go. Um, And then I've got uh, the engineer crew. There's three of them. Three men. Uh, And then... (laughs) <laughs> but here's a little uh, little detail we've got I've got a family dynamic on on the ship we've got uh, the kind of most senior engineer uh, an older guy who's been you know 30 years man and boy as an engineer and then one of the other engineers is his son like a teenage son who's kind of grown up in that world can fix anything but is a bit sort of socially awkward and then his that man's wife and the mother of this boy is also on the ship, and she's like a, the kind of all-purpose kind of... Well, she's a cleaner, essentially. Because um, I always think that on these ships, like, who does all the cleaning? The robots. Um, That's a good point, actually. <laughs> who does the laundry? You the know? scuttlers, so, or whatever they're called. The scutters, yeah. The scutters. And then there's a third engineer who's called Macken. Um, I don't know where I got that name from, <laughs> so don't ask me. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know why. But um, Sounds German. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, international cast so because he's not part of this family that he works with all the time he's a little bit alienated but not in a kind of negative way but he he spends a lot of his free time with his hobby and this is important because it comes on later he makes he makes little robots and like robot toys and things like that out of scrap and uh kind of just a general engineer 
<laughs> yeah. Can he make specifically robots in bottles? Like little miniature <laughs> robots, but he makes them inside of bottles. <laughs> no. I think more like more like Blade Runner, where he just makes like little dwarves with big cock <laughs> noses. <and stuff>. <laughs> dwarves. <laughs> Uh, and then the final character is the executive guy, the suit, um, who's called Benson, apparently. Uh, now, he doesn't particularly want to be on this ship in the middle of nowhere, but he's he's good at his job. He's good at sort of presenting himself, and so he's everybody's friend, at least mm. to their face. But in in reality, he knows that he's there to kind of do quite a ruthless job. He's looking to make cutbacks. Um, he's also looking for a new job because he thinks the company is going to go tits up. Now, we start off with the company exec being brought on board. They're at a space station just docked there. He comes on board for the next mission. And so that's our, our way of meeting all the crew. He kind of goes around, he's introducing himself, and he meets them all. And that's you, your first little bit where you establish all the characters. Uh, Petra, who's your tech engineer, she informs the captain that there's some sort of issue with the ship's computer. And she needs to assemble all the engineers to go and try and work it out. And he's like, he's a bit... Shit, the, the the inspectors on on board. You know, we need to just keep it quiet. So they they shut off the heating and sort of go. Oh, there's a problem with the heating. Come on, let's go fix it. It's nothing. It's a simple thing. So they go, and they can do a lot of sort of faffing about. You know, them. in in sunshine, mm-hmm. I liked it when he put his hand in the water and he was like, ah, it hurts, and then he took his hand out <laughs> of the water and it was covered in ice. Mm. I didn't like it le- when he went back in later on. <laughs> yeah, was several times, and it's apparently warmed up a bit. Yeah, time. I mean they are closer <laughs> to the sun, so maybe that's why. But it it bugged me that. Uh, okay, so eventually Petra comes back to the captain. She says, "Look, we've tested all the circuitry. There's no issue with it, so it must be a software problem, which is potentially a lot more serious." They go to the computer's main hub. Like an alien, you've got a little room in which you kind of specially communicate with the computer, as you do. Uh, And so basically, at the end of this scene, Petra finds a series of unusual actions and confirms a malfunction, uh, which seems like it's been brought about by when they're at the space station, you know, the kind of foreign data coming in and out. So (laughs) Foreign data. From from the episode where he, like, has a French accent because they're doing, like, a... (laughs) Jacques Cousteau <laughs> holodeck story or something. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, <clears throat> this is a tough decision for the captain to make uh, because he knows that company executive's there and it's going to make him look a bit shit, but he needs. He decides the best thing to do, play it by the book. So he gathers everyone in the meeting room and he says, look, problem with the computer... We're going to have to shut it all down and then restart it with the, the backup system, which is obviously designed just for this kind of situation. You know, there's a backup computer there just in case there's a problem with the main computer. So Petra shuts down the computer, but nothing happens. And they're actually locked out of the mainframe. They can't get access to anything. And they're also locked in to the room that they're in, they find out. So a couple of hours pass as they try to sort of get out of the room and then they're sort of discussing their options trying to figure out what the hell's going on and suddenly the doors are opened again so everyone sort of scrambles to their relevant stations to try and work out what's going on but they find themselves still locked out of the computers they can't change the course uh petra figures out what's going on she explains it to the captain so this is my this is kind of the sci-fi concept of the story that's that's gonna bring the film together 
the com- the computer, which is obviously like a kind of futuristic AI sort of thing, as a standard setting, has been given a sen- a kind of artificial sense of a will to live, and it's kind of there to- so that it defends itself <laughs> against against any threats. No. (laughs) (laughs) The computer can't speak at any point. (laughs) And the computer doesn't have a character or or consciousness or anything, but it's it's just there as a sort of a protection system uh, for in case anything tries to, uh, you know, threaten it or anything. So the idea behind this is that it will never kind of be shut down completely or be damaged in such a way that it'll affect the crew. But it is, of course, still programmed not to harm the crew. It's got all your standard laws of robotics and all that sort of stuff. So it shouldn't be a threat. But it has apparently detected, or it's worked out, that they're trying to shut it off. It can't harm the crew, because it's not allowed to, but it's kind of trying to find loopholes in which it can kind of indirectly create things that will harm the crew. Or create situations that will harm the crew. And this is another kind of... This is another thing that I don't like about this whole pitch later on is that I kind of come up with one idea and then just do that three times rather than coming up with (laughs) different ideas. So that would be something else I'd change. Okay, so they're all in the park that Babylon has its own... And this has its own power source and it's like hooked up to different things and so it's kind of self-contained little world. So... They feel like a bit more safe there. Um, the captain realizes he lost contact with Petra, who's off doing something else. Uh, he wants to go and find her, but Clara volunteers to go and get her. And then Clara stops communicating with the lose contact with her. So he's like, oh God, this is a bit of a digi situation. So he gets the engineering team who are down on the lower decks, I guess, to come back up and search for them, assuming that three people are going to be safer than one. And remember, at this point, they don't really know what's going on. So, when they get there, they find Clara, who is completely distraught in a state of shock. And we find the dead body of Petra, who has been beaten and bloodied and something... Uh, okay, the doctor takes Clara to sickbay for medical attention, because she's in a bit of shock. The others convene to try and figure out what's happened. Uh, Machen, um, who is <laughs> the engineer, he finds a piece of one of his robots at this at the site of this uh, killing and he he figures out what's happening that he says the computer... this, this is exactly why i put them in jars in little bottles <laughs> to keep them safe <laughs> <laughs> um he figures out that the computer might be controlling his machines um and then in fact one step further than that because his things he was creating little toys and things were not designed to kill people so but the workshop that he works in is partly automated so that he can kind of concentrate on designing machines rather than actually building them. And then they kind of little robotic things building themselves or building other robots. So the computer can access this and can kind of create these mobile machines that are capable of killing. Uh, so then the doctor comes over the radio, says, oh, shit, I'm being attacked. Come and help me. The crew uh, run to his aid. Uh, while a couple of others go off to find some weapons, they they find the Doctor being attacked by two like ramshackle robot things with blades attached to them as like thrusting weapons, but like Robot Wars, basically, that kind of thing. He's managing to fend them off. He's getting a little bit injured. Uh, but Macken manages to get 
onto a giant fish tank that is in the doctor's uh, medical lab. That's where you have fish tanks. So, and he manages to pull it off the wall. It falls to the ground, smashes, the water goes everywhere, and this destroys the robots, you know, because uh, they're electrically powered. So one of them just sort of shuts down. The other one manages to sort of get splashed and scuttles away. But Machen is severely injured. The engineer is looking at the robot. They, they figure out what's going on. This is like, it's obviously been sort of quite hastily, shoddily put together with few materials that were available. So they're not very well protected. So water can affect them because the circuits are quite exposed. Okay, yes, next, next sort of significant thing. They go to the workshop area where they know these robots are being built. and But they get ambushed by a trap. So when uh, the main engineer, the older engineer, he opens one of the doors. And as it opens, this huge sort of weight of scrap metal slams into him. As if it's like spring-loaded, like a trap. And he's just thrown backwards. He's severely injured. They rush him back to medical bay. And obviously his wife and son are there, so they're very frantic. Um... And then Clara, who uh, has been there as well, she at this point she sort of slips away unnoticed in the panic. She sort of she sort of wanders off. So they they decide to just stick with the plan. They go back to where they were. They realise Clara is missing, but they can't deal with that because she's just they're too busy doing their own thing. But then we see Clara is in her quarters that she shared with Petra. She's poring over all her belongings in a kind of hysterical state of grief. She's lays on the bed. She's crying uncontrollably, that sort of thing. That's a little bit of emotional there. Right, the remaining crew go back to the robotics room. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Basically, they destroy everything there. They get the job done. Then, on their way back to the medical bay, they get ambushed by two more robots. They're trapped in this corridor. Um, they radio over to someone to come help. He comes helps. But... Long story short, there's a battle. One person gets killed, but they destroy the other robots. So they get back to the medical bay, but the doctor has been attacked there again. Uh, and without anyone there to defend them, he managed to fight off the robot. But the the woman uh, who was the cleaning woman, who was the wife and mother character, she's been killed. And uh, the son now, his his dad's fatally injured, his mother's dead, so he's in a kind of pretty bad state. Uh, they decide to, they need to get some rest, they try and get some sleep, someone goes on watch. Um, we skip forward a few hours and the doctor and the captain are talking and they basically decide that uh, Macken has now died and um, with Walter given no chance of survival, the best thing to do when no one else is awake is quietly euthanize him to um, so that they can kind of move the survivors to Babylon, the park, uh, where they can kind of be a bit more comfortable. And he, he's just going to be like a dead weight, literally. So they need to kind of get rid of him. So uh, and they've not been attacked for some time. So they kind of think, oh, maybe all the robots have been dealt with. We've got uh, the captain, the navigator, the doctor, the young lad whose parents are now dead, the executive, and then there's Clara who has kind of gone AWOL. Everyone else is dead. A few of them go back to pick up the personal possessions uh, and stuff like that and some other little essentials. And when they get to the crew quarters, they find Clara hanging from the ceiling. She's committed suicide in her grief. Because I don't think I could write anything without someone killing themselves in it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, that's the most you thing that happens. It's a very, yeah. it's a very go-to thing for me. <laughs> okay, we're nearly there now. Hmm. So we, this is right at the end of the film. There's five survivors now. They're in Babylon. 
they decide that they're going to bury the dead. And this is kind of more for the, the young lad's sake who is kind of emotionally distraught, given a sense of um, something to grieve over and sense of closure about the whole thing. So they're digging graves, essentially. They, they bury the two parents first. Um, you know, this young man is getting very overwrought. The doctor gives him a sedative to help him to sleep. But whilst he's out, the others are resting. Siren starts to go off. And it's Uh-oh. the ship's self-destruct alarm. It's giving them a two-hour warning. The ship is self-destruct. Two hours, two hours. Right, so they've got no choice. They're going to have to get into the escape pods and just jettison themselves out, which is not a good thing to do because you could be marooned in space. They haven't been able to communicate with anyone to say that they're trapped or anything like that. So they, they're worried about that. They wake up uh, the young lad and he's like a bit groggy. So he just sort of goes along with it. But then he kind of goes, wait, 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 wait. No, the computer has no control over the self-destruct system. It has to mm. be triggered manually. And they figure out the computer is just sounding the alarm to try and scare them off. Trying to scare them into running away. And they're a bit sort of not quite sure to trust him because he is just a kid at the end of the day. And um, he's also uh, having a great deal of trauma and drugs in his system. So, <laughs> but they go, okay, well, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So they decide, okay, it's a bluff. We're going to ride it out. Hmm. Uh, and the sirens continue to blare. Uh, they disable the sirens in the park so that it's just a kind of faint background noise of the siren. As they, they, they're just sitting there, as it ticks down to the last few minutes, they gather together and they sort of wait in trepidation. They say a few words of goodbye just in case, and they're not sure what's going to happen. And as time runs out, we just see an external view of the ship as it explodes silently into the vacuum of space. <laughs> the end. <laughs> and everybody dies. not changed much <laughs> in 10 years or how long it's been 15 years uh, <laughs> I mean <laughs> so I mean what, what do you think I mean that is um, know. you know what they say uh, <laughs> right what you know <laughs> um, I think as you just write about suicide <laughs> depression oh. and total grief <laughs> And robots. <laughs> and robots, yeah. <laughs> so that's one I think... No, but, you know, for, for a young man writing a, a story, it, it was uh, more thought through and better than my psycho. <laughs> like, <laughs> did. Is Zac Efron in your one, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> so when Sunshine came out, I was like, oh, I wrote a thing that's quite similar to this. Hmm. Um, yeah, with suicide and all. Yeah. <laughs> so that is sunshine. That is sunshine. Next week we're going to be looking at moonlight. Which moon? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. I think this is our new thing where Calvin is like slow to register a joke, but then likes it far more than more than it is worth. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. 
know we're going to be looking at Fifty Shades Freed, Alan. Oh. You watched the wrong bloody film. Yeah. We're not. We're looking at Fifty Shades Darker. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, sorry. The that other one isn't out yet. Now they're all the same anyway. Thank you for listening to Diminishing Returns. If you'd like to hear more from us, then please head over to our website, dimreturns.com, for a whole plethora of past episodes covering all kinds of films and film series, from Psycho to James Bond to Back to the Future, Evil Dead, Ben-Hur, Fifty Shades of Grey... There's something for everyone over there. And also, if you could head over to iTunes, if you liked our show, and give us a positive rating or review, then that would be great. And please do check us out on Facebook as well. Join us again next week. So long for now.